And this is the final in our series, Right to Know. I've spent the last three episodes describing all manner of experiences in both the making of the film Ocean in a Drop and some of the people and projects we covered in my attempt at understanding how the internet is impacting on rural and tribal communities in India's northeast. But first up, I'm going to depart slightly from the from the theme of the podcast and talk about the perils of social activism in India. And then I want to share some of my thoughts about digital literacy with you. But mostly this episode is about people who believe in each other and the risks they take to believe in them. A word of warning. In this episode, there's a brief story in which violence is described. If there's children listening, you might want to put your headphones on. इंपॉर्टेंट है नरेगा का मतलब ये है कि ग्रामीण इलाके में जो लोग रहते हैं गरीब लोग रहते हैं मजदूर रहते हैं उनको काम गवर्नमेंट की इन मुजफ्फरपुर वी मेट संजय सानी हु विद अ सिंगल लैपटॉप एंड एन इंटरनेट कनेक्शन हैज हेल्प्ड काउंटलेस रूरल वुमेन विद एक्सेस टू लेबर मार्केट इंफॉर्मेशन दैट इंश्योर्स दे रिसीव द एंटाइटलमेंट्स दे आर लीगली एलिजिबल फॉर फॉर मेनी फैमिलीज इट्स देयर ओनली सोर्स ऑफ इनकम and for all the good he has done in Muzaffarpur it's threats of violence he's been rewarded with now sanjay's actually been threatened by the husbands of the women he helps his internet connection and power has been cut he's had access to the building he works in blockaded and some of these men actually accuse him of breaking up their families turning their wives against them totally unaware that without his help little to no money at all would enter their homes as much as the women of muzaffarpur can do to protect sanjay and they do it's still perilous work Back in the tribal village in Bassoni, near the Nepalese border, I met the local hero. A middle-aged man paralyzed on one half of his body. He dragged himself into that Suchna Seva meeting I talked about in a previous episode. I had also met young Komal Kumari, a community worker running the Suchna Seva center there. She told me how the hero inspired her to do what she's doing now. The hero, Kamal described, inspired her to tackle corruption in Pasoni. In former times, he challenged corrupt officials himself. These were elected members of the council and police officers who skimmed money off numerous government schemes flowing into the village. They literally impersonated their fellow villagers. 
taking their names and pocketing their entitlements. Until our hero found out what was going on, villagers were none the wiser. So long as the villagers had no idea these schemes existed, there was free money to be made, and those who profited from their dark money enterprise protected themselves any way they could. I had already heard about community activists being beaten, or, or worse, I, I wondered whether the, the hero's paralysis was a result of such violence, but actually Kamal said he'd had a stroke which left him partially paralysed, and the stroke seemed to have affected his speech as well. We tried to interview him, but he was unable to string a meaningful sentence together. We were winding up three months of shooting and I began reflecting on all the stories we had been told. The Hira Personis was a story that actually began in Bakanpura, the home of the Junk Tower. Through a series of coincidences, I became aware of the disturbing story of social activist Lalit Mehta. Lalit had been brutally murdered in the Kundra jungles, just over a thousand kilometres southeast of Delhi. Lalit was a well-educated young man, an engineer actually, who campaigned in the rural districts to improve access to health facilities and, and decent food. He also conducted detailed social audits of the government's rural employment scheme. In doing so, he found systematic and widespread corruption and went public with his findings. And when he did, he disappeared. It was the 14th of May, 2008. His mutilated body was discovered the following day. He was only 32. The police apparently made no effort to identify him, burying him the same day he'd been found. But Lalit's family, knowing that something was terribly wrong, Well, his family and friends had the body exhumed and they discovered that it indeed was Lalit. He had been so badly mutilated, they were only able to identify him by his shirt and sandals. Lalit's story stirred impoverished communities across India, so much so that Fear Not Friend, the song I wanted to tell you about, appeared and spread quickly. I first heard the song in Bakampura. About 30 schoolgirls sang it for us. As we were filming, Mabin, our intrepid photojournalist, was interviewing Vijay, one of Motilaji's co-workers. Now Vijay heard the girl singing and began to sing along. Sorry. 
As the song came to a close, he turned to Mabin and said, Lalit Mehta worked on rural employment issues. He did a lot of good work, got people jobs and made sure they got paid on time. He also tried to set up a union, but Lalit was beaten to death. This song is a tribute to him. Friend, do not be scared. This song will give you goosebumps, said Vijay, if you listen to it well. Fear Not Friend followed us throughout India, but it wasn't until I began writing and with Mabin's help I was able to connect Lalit's story with Sanjay, with Motilaiji, with Rameshwa, Abdul, Kamal and everyone else we met. I still cannot come to terms with the price people like Lalit pay for all the good they do and the little done to investigate their violent disappearances. Is it so hard to do the right thing? Is it, is it so hard to be decent, responsible, caring and neighbourly? So that was the bit about the perils of social activism, and this is the part I promised you about digital literacy. I may get a little grumpy, but please don't take it personally. This isn't about you, it's about us. Well, the big picture us. During the last quarter of 1991, I visited every single website on the internet. Okay, there were only four back then. Another six were added in 1992, and by the end of 1993, there were 623 websites around. By mid-1994, after completing the Pan-Asia networking report I'd mentioned in the first episode, 2,738 websites had appeared, with a whopping 10,000 by the end of that year. In 2015, on arriving in India, 
863,105,652 websites and just over 1 billion videos were available to one and all, including newcomers to the internet. Throughout this podcast series, I've been asking what would India's rural communities make of all this information and how would they find any, anything meaningful there? What would be the consequences, the ripple effects within a single person, their friends and families, or an entire village, given the sudden appearance of internet-connected computers at their disposal? The internet has become the largest, most unique most far-reaching and instantaneous gathering of us ever. That's you and me and everyone else online right now, anywhere in the world. The internet is ubiquitous in so many ways I simply cannot keep up with its reach into almost every aspect of our lives. It's on some of our wrists, it's inside an increasing number of cars, it's in the International Space Station orbiting within the exosphere, and it's in our pockets alerting us to global and local events the moment they happen. This is the world. The torrent of it, its its wild diversity and uncertainty, its spontaneity, its Wikipedias of the informed and the opinionated. What will India's internet newcomers make of the world they find there, and what will the internet itself look like when a billion more in India alone join us online? What will they have been told about the internet, and what then will their expectations be? Who will inform them of their rights online and protect them from all those who abuse the internet, from predatory scammers, cyber bullies, privacy breaches, and even conspiracy theorists? How will they discern between what is real and what is not? Fake news generated by both swarms of people and bots worldwide and artificial intelligence? Who will guide them through what Maria Popova, the crystalline mind behind brainpickings.org, describes as the pathological impatience that wants us to have all the knowledge now, but not the work of claiming it. Are the answers to be found in the digital literacy training we found in Rajasthan, Uttar Pradesh and Bihar? The same format repeated across hundreds of community information resource centres? Maybe, maybe not. What I saw wasn't a digital literacy revolution. It was a Microsoft literacy education program. Sure, it made a lot of people feel good about learning something so different that it gave them hope, and in some instances, encouraged homegrown innovation and and information sharing. And so it was that at every information resource center, I asked, what are you actually learning here? And pretty much everyone, and I mean everyone, would answer, Notepad, Word, Excel, Paint. No one could describe how they were using any of these applications, though I did see kids drawing rectangles and squares. This, I was told again and again, was digital literacy training. I couldn't understand how people who can't read or write in their own language could possibly make sense of a spreadsheet. And yet, there was Artie in Tolonia, the young woman I told you about who was able to digitise music from cassettes using Cool Edit Pro and had learnt how to do so by watching clips on YouTube. She didn't need to know the language these tutorials were narrated in. She only had to watch how these things were done. But this had more to do with traditional visual learning skills than it did with a spreadsheet. But to be fair, she knew how to search for information on the internet. How she did, without being able to read or write in her own language, let alone in English, I'm still baffled by. 
but I still maintain that desktop navigation, notepad, Word, Excel and Paint is not digital literacy. It does not prepare anyone for neither the promise nor the threats that we find on the internet. is a self-organizing network of networks of people and information that changes with every email sent, every tweet tweeted, every thumb liked on Facebook, every search query on every single search engine, every single swipe we make on our smartphones now, tonight and tomorrow. The one thing Ocean in a Drop gave me more than anything else is, is hope. Not in technology, but in people. There are so many extremely bright people in rural India. They may not read nor write, but many of them have not yet forgotten how to remember, and certainly not yet lost their capacity for innovation in the harshest of environments. But I also fear that they're vulnerable to the threats that we find on the internet. When Ocean in a Drop was first screened in India, I did a whole lot of interviews. A couple of journalists asked me, how can India improve digital empowerment or digital inclusion in rural India? I'm not the person to ask. There are plenty of experts in the villages we filmed in, and I urged them to talk to these people, young and old, flourishing in the so-called media dark. <laughs> The women of Muzaffarpur, who had united to protect themselves from abusive husbands, a single laptop did this. Listen to Rajmal and Shraban from Bakanpura, young men hoping to eradicate casteism in their villages so that every child has equal access to education and the opportunity it affords. Rina and Basanti in Mamoni, who share the information they find online, everything from beauty tips to birth control, with hundreds of women in their villages. It's people such as these who have worked out that digital literacy goes well beyond the very basic desktop applications that they had been taught. They tell us that we need not only provide computers, but the tools to make things with them. Not just data entry or search engine queries, but to evoke their creativity, to give them agency, to make things that are important to them and in their own context. Being digitally literate isn't about having a computer, the skills to use it and an internet connection in your home, but the means to know how to make use of them, knowing what information is relevant and where to access it from. Teach them code, journalism, video and audio production. Teach them their rights online and, and how to discern fact from fiction. This is a generation inspiring change in their villages, overcoming poverty and prejudice from the youth up. These are young people, increasingly more confident and able to make their own decisions. They are the voices to listen out for as they truly reach beyond the media dark, knowing that theirs truly is a right to know.
As I was putting the finishing touches on this podcast, I realised that all the stories I told in In Ocean in a Drop and the few described in this series and those in my book are now, well, very much part of the historical record. India is not immune to the rapid changes we all experience. In fact, in some ways, change is far more rapid there, and that may well be a legacy of its 5,000 years of cultural heritage. In the days leading up to finalising this episode, I've become aware of the wider distribution of smartphones across India. Where there were once Sichna Saver hubs, there is now an app, and many of the information resource centres I'd visited have closed and many more have opened. WhatsApp has partnered with organisations like the Digital Empowerment Foundation to address the serious issue of misinformation being spread on the platform, and a new generation of fashion designers are embracing traditional weavers, building on the social enterprise model founded in Chanderi. This was Right to Know, a podcast produced for the Association for Progressive Communications, or APC. The series producer is APC's communications manager, Flavia Fasanini. Our multimedia coordinator and designer is Kathy Chen. The theme music is a traditional folk song from Rajasthan by Anwar Khan Manganir, recorded by Shweta Rao. Additional field recordings and special effects sounds by Halek and Aurora, licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution 3 license. Original music, sound design and production by myself, and you can find the soundtrack on andrewgarten.bandcamp.com. This podcast has been adapted from my book, Right to Know, India's Internet Avant-Garde, published in 2017 by the Digital Empowerment Foundation and the Australia India Institute. You can watch Ocean in a Drop and download the book from oceaninadropfilm.com. I'm Andrew Garten, and thank you so much for listening. Yeah.